Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have another, I think I've said fantastic every day this week, so let's say a wonderful show. A stupendous show. Um, except for the, pa- the fact that all the scooters I use to get around in D.C. are all hiding out in Arlington for some reason. Oh, Robbie, you so, and these scooters, what are you going to do? Well, I took an e-bike instead. You have to pedal a little bit. It's just, it's just too much. It's too much. All right. Well, I don't want to put too much more work on you, so let's start going through this program today. Take, take this burden off your shoulders a little bit, Robbie. Today on Rising, we'll have Reason Magazine's Liz Wolf back. We'll discuss the new data showing that in 2022, the IRS went after the poorest taxpayers, plus a certain failed gubernatorial candidate from Georgia said she's likely to run again. We'll get more into that later. But first this morning, Sam Bankman-Fried has posted in his substack an FTX pre-moratorium review. He writes, over the course of 2021, Alameda's balance sheet grew to roughly $100 billion of net asset value, $8 billion of net borrowing leverage, and $7 billion of liquidity on hand. Alameda failed to sufficiently hedge its market exposure, however. Over the course of 2022, a series of large, broad market crashes came in stocks and in crypto, leading to an 80% decrease in the market value of its assets. Okay, that we knew. Uh, here's what's a little more interesting, and we'll we'll put that what we just read into layman's terms in a second. But uh, so in November 2022, an extreme, quick, targeted crash precipitated by the CEO of Binance made Alameda insolvent. Um, that, so that's what he's he's claiming here. So basically, he's saying. So a lot of this we did already know. This is just his kind of rehashing of the facts to explain why none of it was his fault. Right. He's saying, or not none, he's saying he could have, you know, he does. Right, that it was a very better. unlikely he, chain yes, of events. He was saying they had enough, the they, they would have been covered if things went, if things got dicey. If things got bad, they still would have been okay. If things got really bad, they still would have been okay. But things got so unimaginably, unpredictably bad, markets just totally crashed. And then in the midst of that happening, he said it, that was a very stressful situation. But then it got put over the top by uh, this this rival, the Binance guy, you know, tweeting that we were going to make a deal with FTX, but we're looking at their balance sheet and we don't like what we see. They don't really, they're, they're, they sit upon a house of cards, right. so we're not investing. And that caused people to want to pull their assets out, and then, which they couldn't cut. It's a run on the bank, couldn't cover it. That's what got them into the situation they're in. Right. Um, this is, by the way, this is very interesting. So he created a Substack today, or I don't know when he created it. This is his first post. The first it went post up this uh, three hours ago. Um, which is notable, because it does seem part of this ongoing trend where no matter how tough a spot he's in, no matter how much it looks like he's going to have the full weight of the criminal justice system come down on him, and no matter how much he's in a position where most people would say, "Ah, maybe I should keep my mouth shut, consult only with my lawyers, not expose myself any more than I've already been exposed. As we've discussed on this show, he's done interview after interview and having gone to jail and now being under house arrest at his parents' house in Palo Alto hasn't stopped him from both giving interviews and now fully just broadcasting to the world on Substack. And people are wondering if this is part and parcel of the same hubris that got him into the situation in the first place. What I think he's missing in all of this. He's basically suggesting it's unfair. Mm-hmm. It was a bad, it was an accident, a lightning struck three times, and then, and then someone was out to get me. A rival took me down by blasting out that, uh, that, that my thing was not a solid investment and he was not going to invest in it, and that hurt me. He makes that sound like that's unfair mm-hmm. rather than just like business and mm-hmm. rivalry. Like, 
that was not what, what the Binance guy did is not improper. And in fact, it was letting people know a truth, which right. is that the underlying value of the whole thing had collapsed. So it, it, it was certainly to the Binance guy's advantage to say that, but it wasn't what he did was not illegal. Yeah, it's like designing a car with a fuel tank and an open flame under the hood and saying, as long as you don't crash it, you won't explode. Yeah. I mean, it's perfectly predictable. And it is frustrating to see him continue to avoid accountability. Um, and And... It's like that, and then if someone who I want to like start advertising, uh, what 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 a metaphor did you just use? A, a, a car, a, a car, a, a, a car. Burning, yeah, if someone want to advertise, but instead of advertising, they they put out a public service announcement saying uh, these cars are going to catch fire, which is true, <laughs> and then say, oh, how dare you tell people that? Yeah, I mean, look, so I mentioned earlier that there have been, he's continued to give interviews. Um, Theodore Schleifer over at Puck flew out to uh, his parents' house where he's under house arrest with an ankle monitor in Palo Alto and painted a very kind of bleak portrait of what's going on for him. Of course, infinitely more uh, Tony and plush than what most prisoners are having to deal with in the United States of America. Uh, yeah, this... Uh there were some interesting lines in this uh, this profile of SBF. Um, now he sits stir-crazy all day eating vegan burgers delivered to his home, <laughs> playing video games, voraciously consuming Twitter. Not like none of this sounds so horrible. This is basically what I do every day. Right. And doing a hell of a lot of ruminating and antsy <laughs> pottering around his parents' house. His parents' unostentatious $4 million home. Exactly. What is an unostentatious $4 million home? I guess home? there's no, like, marble plinths on the front and no, no, no cherubic uh, fountains in the backyard or something. What a poor guy. <laughs> yeah, so look, in, in this piece... Um, Teddy describes his mental state as seeming like he knows he's supposed to be contrite, but he seems to still think that he hasn't done anything wrong. Uh, which and that he can fix it. Right. That also comes through in all of this. See, he thinks that um, FTX is still a worthwhile investment for people. He thinks if people do invest, then he would be able to make customers whole. Um, he is a lot in that substack. So he doesn't like what the bankruptcy guy that, that got brought in to, to kind of handle this is doing. And he says if that guy was still going for a strategy of basically fixing the company mm -hmm. and, and taking on investment, they'd be able to pay everyone out and everything would be fine. Um, that's clearly still what he wants to happen. Yeah. So I don't know if he's in deep denial about Yeah, he situation. says in this, he tells Teddy that he thinks that the lawyers and advisors are basically too risk averse and that, again, as you put it, right. he could fix it. Right. A, a, a guy who lost this much amount of money essentially gambling, of course, thinks the, the people yeah, doing like normal risk fix, huh? uh, 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 assessment are too risk averse. Yeah. Like if you're used to just betting it all on... On uh, on black over and over again. Oh, I lost everything. But People who don't do win. that are risk averse. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. It well, is wild. Well, back to the rivalry. Let's recall this exchange between Binance and SPF from December. So, yeah, this is what I was talking about. Sam was so unhinged when we decided to pull out as an investor that he launched a series of offensive tirades at multiple Binance team members, including threatening to go to extraordinary lengths to make us pay. We still have those text messages. Sam replies, you won, CZ Binance. There's no need to lie now about the buyout. We initiated conversations around buying you out, and we decided to do it because it was important for our business. And while I was frustrated with your negotiation tactics, I chose to still do it. Hmm. 
Yeah, I, it, it's just, and I'm sorry, it is just this accountability thing, which is making him seem very unsympathetic. What's confusing to me is why he still thinks it makes him look better and why the people who are advising him don't stop this behavior. You can't tell me that, we, we talked about this, I think, in one of my radars a few weeks ago, that he is making disclosures, potentially very meaningfully, meaningful from a legal perspective, disclosures about the timing of various events and when he knew what. And every time he opens his mouth to say something like this, he makes a mistake. Moreover, there have been several of these interviews, which in fact were not intended to be interviews. There were DM conversations that were on the record and he didn't believe they were on the record because he says he had a prior relationship with the uh, journalist and thought they were just friends chatting. I mean, real rookie moves, I got to say, for someone who's been invested with this much power and frankly, other people's money. Also had a rookie Substack move. Maybe this is completely forgivable, but uh, apparently when he created this Substack this morning, uh, initially, it was like you could sign up, you'd pay for it, mm-hmm. and somebody pointed that out, and then he, he responded on Twitter. He said, uh, whoops, that was unintentional, good catch, so he changed it, so you can read it for free. <laughs> you don't have to pay him. He also uh, responded to someone on Twitter, uh, I think this is a crypto person, who, who's claiming that FTX spent, so I have no idea if this claim is correct, FTX spent half a million on daily flights for their Amazon boxes from Miami to the Bahamas because Amazon doesn't deliver in the Bahamas. Again, I don't know if that's true. And then this person jokes, no wonder they went bankrupt. SPF responded to that saying, wait, FTX definitely wasn't spending $180 million a year on Amazon delivery costs. I think your units are probably off somewhere there. But that does make it sound like it's not even a real amount. denial, right? Exactly. If it's four hundred ninety-nine thousand, uh, you know, thousand yeah. dollars, then it's okay. Apparently, look, you know, there was a lot made of the fact that apparently he got, you know, some special conditions in the, the Bahamian jail, um, and there has been reporting about how because he's vegan, he, he, you know, in this Teddy Teddy Schleifer article, he was somehow like surprised that his dietary needs weren't going to be accommodated in this context <laughs> and about how he was eating all of these uh, peanut butter sandwiches and was wondering how long this jar of peanut butter was going to last. I mean, look, he's really going through it. Poor kid. So we'll see what ends up happening. Uh, but right now he's in a pretty comfortable situation in an unostentatious, very modest $4 million home. He's really, he's really uh, <laughs> Palo Alto. having to work for Thoughts and prayers. hard time. Yeah. Thoughts and prayers. We're rising after this. What's on your radar, Brianna? Well, Robbie, Americans know they have some of the worst health care in the Western world. We pay twice as much for worse care. And while other countries guarantee that you can get medical treatment if you're sick, no matter how much you earn for a living or how rich your parents were, in America, whether you can get treatment depends on whether you can afford exorbitant prices for health insurance or alternatively, whether you have a job that provides it. If you lose your job because you're sick, tough luck. If you miss a payment on your health insurance, oh well. All those years of paying don't count for anything if you stop because we've decided to rely on a health insurance system rather than a health care system. It's so bad that that's not even really a partisan issue at this point. Sure, a whopping 88% of Democrats support Medicare for all, but nearly 50% of Republicans do too, bringing total American support to nearly 70%. In fact, reducing health care costs was the number two priority among Americans, according to a 2022 poll. And in 2020, every Democratic candidate had to at least 
pretend to support a substantial reform to the American health care system in order to compete with Bernie's compelling message for Medicare for all. Yet despite the intense public interest in health care reform, the spotlight the pandemic put on the vulnerabilities in our health care system and the fact that 15 million Americans are about to lose their health care as the COVID health emergency ends in April, still don't hear much about it. That last bit is probably news to you. Yes, when the Biden administration ends the COVID-19 public health emergency later this year, likely in April or July, Medicaid will be terminating families' health care for the first time since February 2020, according to a report in Newsweek. Why? Well, the Trump administration empowered Health and Human Services to use its emergency powers to support overwhelmed hospitals, make vaccines more accessible, and keep millions of Americans enrolled in public health insurance. Up to 15 million people will be disenrolled from Medicare and CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program, when the emergency status ends. Medicaid and CHIP enrollment were up 26 percent during the pandemic, supporting 89 million people as of last June, according to the government, because Congress blocked states from kicking the needy off their programs as long as the public health emergency persisted. But even if you believe the pandemic is over, what's not over is the public health crisis that predated the pandemic. Are we really just going to go back to letting 68,000 people die every year simply because they're too poor to live. Now, Joe Biden was always the most conservative Democrat in the 2020 pool, but even he had to offer some health care solutions. Biden campaigned on a public option, insisting that we needed to build on Obamacare rather than scrapping that deeply flawed half measure and simply moving away from an insurance-based system that confers so much profit on corporate middlemen, the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry. Under a public option plan, Americans could buy a Medicare-like insurance program at a competitive price, basically state-run insurance that's cheaper than private insurance because the government isn't ostensibly seeking to turn a profit. A public option plan was ditched by Obama in 2009-2010 after the health insurance industry lobbied hard to scrap it. And perhaps unsurprisingly, Joe Biden, who took more money from the health insurance industry than any other person in the Democratic primary, seems not to have mentioned the public option since he was sworn into office. It's important to drive home the following point. Politics, the red, blue, D versus R of it all, are a distraction from the real battle, which is in fact top-down, corporations versus the people. And the outcome of elections is better predicted by lobbyists than by polls assessing the people's priorities. When an industry can't afford for a candidate to win, they simply pay enough money to make sure the candidate loses. There's no clear illustration of this as we pivot to the 2024 primary season than concerns from private industry about a possible Democratic candidate who might be less eager to appease the big insurance industry than Joe Biden. Let's take a listen. Will President Biden run or not run? I think we're all waiting to hear his decision. Um, if he decides not to run, uh, we know what we're going to get with the Biden administration, right? We know what we've gotten so far. If he decides not to run and it's opened up and, and there's a primary, you have Democrats that have a tendency to be a little more liberal and more left-leaning and introduce things around Medicare for all, if you remember with Bernie or with Elizabeth Warren in the past. And so, you know, I think for an investor, it's the headline risk, right? I mean, even if we go back and we look at what happened with the Affordable Care Act, not nearly as bad as people had anticipated, 
But again, you know, that's once we get to the details, the headlines are, are generally what cause managed care to trade off. So until we know the public policy of how that, that individual's thinking, it's hard to make a determination. And as you know, investors sell first and ask questions later. Do you hear that? Her saying the Affordable Care Act wasn't as bad as they anticipated. <laughs> That's J.P. Morgan's head of health care services basically admitting that her organization is rooting against pro-Medicare for all candidates. To be clear, the bank is likely to do more than simply root against a potential Democratic Party challenger to Biden. They'll put their thumb on the scale to the tune of millions of dollars. The insurance industry gave Joe Biden over $8.5 million in 2020. And they gave over 6.5 to Trump, ensuring that whomever won, Americans who want and need health care reform, won't get it. J.P. Morgan donated nearly $400,000 to Biden's campaign, and J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon's wife even contributed $52,800 to those campaign efforts. They're not donating to save democracy. They're donating to ensure that the deeply unequal system they've benefited from doesn't shift at all in your favor despite the lies politicians in both parties tell you to get you to the polls. Now, what do we do about it? There was once a time when Republicans like John McCain were very serious about campaign finance reform. Unfortunately, those days are largely behind us. Last September, Senate Republicans blocked a bill that required disclosure of dark money donors. And Democrats use Republicans' refusal to reform the system as an excuse not to clean their own house, saying they won't unilaterally disarm. But things might be changing. According to Open Secrets researcher Carl Evers-Hillstrom, 2020 was the first election since Citizens United that liberal, non-party outside groups outspent their conservative counterparts, meaning that dark money can no longer be presumed to advantage Republicans over Democrats. Concerns about the influence of Silicon Valley money in particular, with its left-leaning bias, has also generated some skepticism about dark money among some Republicans. For example, prior to midterm, Pennsylvania senatorial candidate Doug Mastriana, excuse me, who was overwhelmingly outspent by his Democratic opponent, introduced a resolution to regulate election spending. But without much wider buy-in, the path to a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United is acutely uphill, even though 66 percent of Republicans support it, according to a 2018 poll by the Center for Public Integrity. An August CBS poll said that 86 percent of all voters thought the influence of money in politics was a top threat to democracy, higher even than political violence or attempts to overturn elections. Sorry, 1-6 committee. Republican legislators are widely out of step with their voters. But without Democrats leading more vocally on this issue, it's almost certain they'll pay no political penalty for that reality. Representative Jason Crow introduced an end to dark money act on Monday. That's something to watch. And I'm sure Senator Sheldon Whitehouse will continue to reintroduce the Disclose Act, which claims to close loopholes that allow dark money to flood U.S. elections. He introduces it periodically over the last 10 years. Unfortunately, I'm also sure that corrupt politicians will continue to vote it down. The 20 Republican holdouts from last week's Force the Vote moment won the right to keep Kevin McCarthy's super PAC out of Republican primary races, a significant win that progressives who have been targeted by Hakeem Jeffries' super PAC should envy. 
But this is really one of those issues where as long as voters are willing to vote for politicians because, let's say, they say the right thing about wokeness in one direction or the other, or they signal on some other cultural issue, there won't be any accountability for politicians who still enthusiastically suckle at the teat of dark money and do the substantive bidding of corporations. And I regret to inform you, no matter how strong the polls look in favor of health care reform, no matter how many millions of Americans are kicked off of their health care as COVID ends, nothing will change unless voters have higher standards for who they'll actually vote for. That's the grim truth. So, yeah, I was struck, as I often am, by the um, uni unified point of view across partisan camps. Of course, it's more Democrats than Republicans. But the fact that you have these overwhelming majorities, especially in the realm of campaign finance reform, and you don't see much in the way of campaign finance reform, something's got to break. Democrats have got to stop falling in line and voting for Democrats. Republicans have got to stop falling in line and voting for these candidates unless they actually put their money where their mouth is and plan to do something about this really fundamental issue that's keeping their, the, the, the huge gap between what Americans want and what Congress will do so wide. Yeah, as you said, at the end of your radar, I mean, it's up to it's ultimately up to the voters. No amount of cash can can make a voter vote for someone else. And if this is what is important to voters, they need to reward candidates that have pledges not to take um, certain categories of money because legislatively this is not going away. I mean, Citizens United is a Supreme Court decision. I think you probably disagree. I think there are sound um, free speech First Amendment reasons. That's ultimately what the Supreme Court concluded with the ACLU's agreement that you do that, that money is speech, and you you and you have the right to spend money on candidates, and you have the right to organize in a corporation and spend money. That's what the Supreme Court has decided. It would take a constitutional amendment to undo that or significant changeover at the Supreme like a really significant changeover. So that basically that's not going to happen. I mean, it could. But mind you, most Republicans want that to happen. So that, yeah, that's I, this weird place that we're in. But I agree that it's it unlikely depends how you. I mean, it depends how you ask how you ask these questions. And that's true of the Medicare for all as well. But it's you know, true if of every you, question in the world. Well, yeah, but if you say, look, the fundamental issue was, could, a, could a, a documentary filmmaker run a film that was critical of Hillary Clinton in some critical pre-election time period, which was, that's what Citizens United is, I, you're going to have 95% of Republicans, if you explain to them that that was the issue at stake, say, no, that was correctly decided. In fact, you're probably going to have a lot of Democrats say that issue was correctly decided. Right, but well. of course, that's not really the question that's at issue. When, when people are asked if they think the influence of dark money in politics is particularly pernicious, it is, what did I say, the number two issue among voters in America. So something has to be done. I think there's an awareness of how this is negatively affecting politics. That, to me, I think the central question is, given people have these diffuse priorities, and given that even though we say something like healthcare, education is ranked higher, often when people go to the polls, they're voting on these other kinds of issues. And I think Republicans in particular are very adept at exploiting certain other more timely, punchy cultural issues to push one way Well, often they're voting at the polls, the we're often voting for candidates. And all their faulty right, these, promises and all their, you know. But those promises have to do with a lot of these kinds of Issues we just saw Ron DeSantis talk about wokeness and in the in mm -hmm. military spending. What, what what was it? All of these kinds of things get shoehorned together. All I'm saying is, 
if we don't really vote clearly, really rank our priorities and clearly make electoral decisions based on what is actually our biggest priority instead of what the punchiest, most angry-making thing on the headlines is, this kind of thing is going to continue, absent some other big, more revolutionary change that affects the system. Mm. All right, we'll have more Rising right after this. Stay with us. According to new data released by Syracuse University, the IRS continued the historical trend of hassling primarily low-income taxpayers while auditing very few millionaires and billionaires last year. According to the report, the taxpayer class with five and a half time, uh, times the audit rates as other classes was low-income wage earners taking the earned income tax credit. Joining us now to discuss is associate editor at Reason Magazine, Liz Wolf. Good to see you again, Liz. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Yes, uh, nice to have you back after your uh, you have been on maternity leave. Congratulations, new mother. Excited for you. Thank you. Um, okay, so talk to us about this story, um, which I saw getting a lot of uh, pickup, actually. I think Drudge picked it up. Uh, what was the deal here? Yeah, so basically this was information released um, about who the IRS went after in 2022. I think lots of people have made the very good point that the $80 billion infusion in new funding, which is going to be doled out over the next decade, hasn't really gone into effect yet. But I would I would argue that, you know, these funds are fungible and uh, these agencies sort of know what to anticipate in the future. And so they ought to be gearing up to use that money. Uh, but I think the fact of the matter is when uh, that money was initially uh, designated to go toward the IRS, there was a huge news cycle where basically the Biden administration kept claiming that households making under $400,000 a year would absolutely not be hurt by this. This would not be uh, an increase in the audit rate for middle income people and low income people. But we we know that that's just not true. They The IRS consistently goes after people claiming the earned income tax credit. They consistently go after the poorest possible earners. And the reason for this is it's a question of incentives. They use correspondence audits, which are audits by mail, to go after poor people. Um, it's a whole lot harder to get millionaire and billionaire fat cats, and they don't have that many resources, so they choose not to. And so everything you said there is absolutely true. It's disgusting. The correspondence audits are basically low-hanging fruit. The easier kind of audits and the people who get caught up in them, to your point, are disproportionately poor, disproportionately black people. The, the most audited district or, or county, rather, in the country is this little uh, town in, in Mississippi that 50 uh, percent of the people who live there uh, are poor enough to take advantage of the earned income tax credit. So it's a really terrible situation. But what some people have been arguing is that the situation was less grim 10 years years ago when IRS funding was actually higher. And the reason for that is that the more sophisticated kinds of audits that are required to go after higher income earners who have, you know, lawyers and accountants who can exploit all kinds of loopholes, et cetera, requires more highly trained agents than the agency has been able to afford. And because of the pivot to these kind of lower hanging fruit type investigations as a consequence of funding cuts over the last 10 years, what we've seen is that over the last 10 years, audits of the rich have gone down from 16 percent to just 2 percent in 2019. Uh, what, what do you say to people who want those audit rates for the rich to go back up? I rate this claim sort of partly true. You are correct that um, the distribution of who the IRS audited did look really different about 10 years ago and even 15 years ago because of funding differences. However, I think there are a few things we need to consider here. Number one, the IRS is trying to hire a whole bunch of new agents. 
The CBO is estimating that it's going to take about three years of ramp up time for senior agents uh, who are more experienced. Okay, for the more junior agents that they're hiring, it's going to take even longer than three years. So we're talking about this infusion of cash that's happening now, but it might be three years, four years, five years, six years until we actually see the effects of that. Um, so I think it's important to be a little skeptical of their estimates about how much revenue they'll bring in. I also think it's important to keep turning back to this idea that the U.S. in terms of the tax gap when compared to other countries, especially other OECD countries, we actually don't have that much of a gap between what is owed and what is actually collected by the IRS. Fundamentally, I think a lot of people believe this narrative about millionaires and billionaires who squirrel away their wealth and uh, find lots of creative ways to hide it. And of course they do. Like to some degree, that is something that is happening. They have an incentive to do so and they have the means to do so. They will always be able to hire the best lawyers and accountants to be able to help them um, you know, creatively move their wealth uh, in order to avoid being stuck with a huge tax bill. However, we aren't that bad tax gap wise, all things considered. I think we're on par with Japan's tax gap. Um, so I think it's important for people to always true back to that and realize that this is not uh, an enormous problem in the U.S. compared to other countries. Well, just to address that point, Liz, I'm sorry, Ravi, but I happened to have done my radar on this yesterday, so I had some numbers on hand. The U.S. Treasury loses about $160 billion each year in taxes owed by the richest Americans, the top 1%, who are getting audited at lower and lower rates. So I take your point that, of course, ramping up this program is going to take a ramp up, it's going to take time, but isn't it important for rich people to have to pay their fair share in taxes and for that money, which is enough to almost fund the entire Department of Housing and Urban Development, hardly a paltry sum, to actually be collected so that rich people aren't getting by without paying their fair dues, while poor people are the ones that are still being targeted, regardless of how long it takes to implement the program to restore balance. I think you might be more optimistic than I am about the amount of revenue that can be collected here. And so uh, well, I'm just, that's I'm just quoting the only authorities that we have on this. Well, yeah, so I'm going to look at the, the federal government's record in this. And if you look at uh, during the Obama era, when he implemented FATCA, which basically went after frequently expats uh, foreign bank accounts in order to have them declare that, um, you know, there were estimates for how much revenue that would generate. And it ultimately generated like a third of what they had claimed. Uh, and so, I mean, you can go back through the numbers of this. You, you might still say that's a justifiable, reasonable approach for the Obama administration. But you know, I'm not too impressed when the revenue estimate is one thing and then the actual amount that is collected is a third of that. And so that's the situation that I think could possibly happen here. Isn't it the case that um, tax revenue in the U.S. hovers around like 20 percent of GDP regardless of changes in policy or what gets done or what happens? It's like it always ends up being about the same and that Con, you know, confounds people like, oh, we should do it this way. We should do it this way. This was a bad year. This was a better year. But it always ends up being about 20% of GDP. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really uh, quite wild. If you, I, you know, uh, legislators have experimented with changing like the wealth tax in the past and sort of rejiggering that in order to collect different amounts of revenue. Uh, they've experimented with different funding levels for the IRS. I think you and I both sort of agree, Robbie, like fundamentally at the end of the day, we have a pretty incompetent agency. Uh, with a whole bunch of incompetent mm -hmm. people. And you could point to lack of funding or lack of good incentives, like maybe they're simply not paying people highly enough to attract the most competent people. But I mean, fundamentally, you look at uh, the fact that taxpayer information has been hacked, the fact that taxpayer information has been leaked to ProPublica. This is not a super modernized agency that does really smart things uh, in terms of data security. 
and I think it's very fair for people to sort of wonder, okay, well, they're not doing a good job of protecting our data. They're not doing a good job of providing customer service. We're often playing a guessing game in terms of how much we owe. I keep coming back to the idea that simplifying the tax code would be the better approach that we could take instead of attempting to wade through uh, this really miserable process of constantly haggling over how much money What about just informing people what they actually owe and having them pay that instead of having to use, I'm sure, the, you know, the tax collecting company, H&R Block type organizations love being obligated to help you think this through. Um, seems like a massive you know, giveaway to that entire industry. But maybe yeah. we could actually just tell people what they owe. Absolutely. I mean, that's the policy that they use. That's the approach they use in tons and tons of other countries. And I think it's a little bit of like frequently a sort of like leftist talking point of like, oh, well, that's how they do it in Europe and like applied to all kinds of different things like single payer healthcare, for example. But like legitimately, why don't we look to how other countries <laughs> do it and possibly consider creating a more simplified tax code? Because yeah, fundamentally, I actually think there's a, day, a lot of well, agreement the on that. Mm -hmm. I have the free time and the ability to figure out what I owe in taxes, but a much poorer person does not. Yeah, I think there's a lot of agreement about that. No, no problems there. I think the problem that people are having is the idea that by not addressing the problems with the IRS that you articulated so well just a minute ago, you're just codifying, you're locking in a system where these poor people are still getting over audited. The IRS isn't going anywhere. And at the same time, these rich people who only get audited when the IRS have more funding are getting left off the hook. And people are looking at the fact that people pushing this bill earn on average 12 times more than the average American. Congress is filled with millionaires, uh, multi-millionaires. And they are the ones that are backing this program that basically ensures that people like them and their donors don't get audited, audited as much as people in Humphrey, uh, Mississippi. So what do you do about the people in Humphrey, Mississippi, who defund the IRS, defund this, this $87 million, a billion, sorry, the, the, new, the new inflection of cash that just came through in the omnibus bill? They're still on the hook, while rich people are not. What's to be done about that? Well, two things. First of all, I love that you talked about uh, how many people in Congress are multimillionaires. I think about like Bernie Sanders and Nancy Pelosi, and it like legitimately uh, leaves me a little confounded in terms of like, you know, pretending to be a man of the people. And, you know, that's not always quite the case. Bernie Sanders, um, who, to be clear, earned two million dollars from the sale of his book while in his 70s. Sure, but sure, please go ahead. And, and Nancy Pelosi, and, and who has, is a multimillionaire many times over, I think over $100 million as a consequence of doing stock trades and things like that. But, but please. We can do a whole segment on Bernie Sanders sometime soon. Uh, that would be absolutely delightful. Um, no, but I mean, to your point, I think you're, you're claiming that in the current system, no millionaires are audited. That's not quite true. Uh, we do have a significant chunk of millionaires who are audited under the current level of IRS but funding. many fewer than the but poor, I which is the whole point well, here, right, well, Liz? Well, hold on. But I also think it's important to consider like your your hypothesis is that poor people, people taking advantage of the earned income tax credit will be audited at a different rate given the new infusion of IRS funding. No, no, I under the status quo, Liz, under the status quo, poor people are already getting over audited. The infusion of money yeah. is supposed to correct it so that rich people get audited, too. So yeah. what do we do yeah. about that and imbalance? And what I am saying is that I don't think that there will actually be a difference between, uh, you know, how poor people are targeted in 2021 and 2022 versus in 2024, 2025, 2026. 
because fundamentally, this is still a question of incentives for the IRS. They are looking to go after the low-hanging fruit, and I'm not entirely sure why an infusion of cash would make it so that they suddenly don't go after that low-hanging fruit. It might be a both-and situation where they go after poor people and they go after millionaires and billionaires at a higher rate, but I think it's going to be easier for them to continue to conduct these correspondence audits. And I also think that if they were actually serious about their talking point that people making under $400,000 a year would not see an increase in their audit rates, then they should have codified that into law. But they chose not to, despite the fact that we had a huge news cycle where we haggled over this. They had the option to do so. They could have enshrined this and they chose not to. And to me, that indicates something very concerning. Yeah, that's, uh, a great, that's a great point, Liz. That's a great point, Liz. I think Republicans and Democrats, if they really mean what they say, should definitely come together for bipartisan uh, legislation to make sure that IRS funding does maybe, come. Maybe they can now that they'll actually be able to discuss it on the House floor. Right. We'll be uh, and, actually and allowed to have discussions so about that, things So that again. millionaires and billionaires don't get completely let off the hook. Thank you so much, Liz. Thanks, guys. More rising for you right after this. Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez landed in hot water with conservatives earlier this week after she tweeted about the alleged dangers of gas stoves, marking a potential new frontier in the culture war. Fury over such a proposed ban on stoves uh, was sparked Tuesday when a member of the United States Consumer Product Safety Commission told Bloomberg, in reference to indoor pollutants linked to gas stoves, quote, this is a hidden hazard. Any option is on the table. Products that can't be made safe can be banned. The White House has since confirmed that President Biden does not support such an action. However, partisans on both sides of the aisle appear to have nonetheless dug their heels in. People love to be big mad. Republican Congressman Ronnie Jackson wrote on Twitter, quote, I'll never give up my gas stove. If the maniacs in the White House come from my stove, they can pry it from my cold, dead hands. Come and take it. Robbie, you were just saying that uh, about your stove before yep, the came on the air. Yep, I feel the same way. The same way. <laughs> Meanwhile, over Try CNN. and take it. <laughs> Let's listen to what CNN's uh, chief climate correspondent had to say on the topic. This is 100 years of advertising. You know, you're cooking with gas now was a deliberate campaign from the American Gas Association when they were up against wood and coal mm -hmm. back in the 30s. Even today, a couple of years ago, it was found that they're sort of paying influencers to cook out their gas stoves because electric, frankly, is so superior just in terms of it's much more efficient, it's safer, the new induction stoves are safer and all of that. Science is showing us that having... A gas stove in a small apartment, especially with bad ventilation, it's like having an, a car idling there. And if you have wow. young kids, it can affect cognitive abilities and in, as well as asthma. That's what that shill for big electric stove had to say. <laughs> uh, look, people have different preferences about these things. I, I, I don't know. You referenced this the other day. You said this is apparently there's research. There has been research on the harms to kids and how it causes asthma. Um, I looked at at least one of the studies that was going around yesterday, uh, and that study that was referenced by CNN that concluded that 12.7 percent of all childhood asthma can be attributed to gas stoves. Uh, according to a Twitter user PolitiFact, uh, who writes a uh, PolyFact rather, who writes uh, a lot of really good, uh, taking a, a conservative position on a lot of uh, culture and economic issues uh, that I like, uh, he said that study was funded and run by anti-gas and clean energy advocates. The study's top authors are listed as staff for RMI, RMI which admits to at least partially funding the study as well. It's a nonprofit dedicated to carbon neutrality and the acceleration of the quote clean energy transition. Yeah. RMI, I'm looking at the study. The RMI is the top author. Also, there's a study that comes out of the Faculty of Medicine and Health from Sydney School of Public Health, um, another Australian uh, health uh, 
School of Public Health, Department of Epidemiology and Population Health at Albert Einstein College and Medicine in the Bronx, um, and some other groups. So, yeah, I don't think you have to rely on this study or any other to know that it's been pretty common knowledge for a long time. This is from the Washington Post, not studying that study, that natural, uh, natural gas stoves emit air pollutants such as nitrogen dioxide, carbon monoxide, and fine particulate matter at levels the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and World Health Organization has that are unsafe and linked to respiratory illnesses, cardiovascular problems, cancer, and other health conditions. But look, science has been wrong on these kinds of things before. Eggs are good for you, then they're bad for you, then they're good for you again. Meat, wine, chocolate, we've all been through the whole rigmarole. I completely respect if people want to continue to subject themselves to some level of risk. Maybe it's not any risk at all. And the good news is that nobody's actually coming for your stove, so no need to uh, start arming yourself and uh, nailing boards over your front door here. Well, wait a minute. I, but, okay, but you're agreeing that, well, I appreciate what you just said, but you <laughs> seem to be agreeing that this is a Republican's pounce story, which I saw everyone, I saw literally the, the Republican sees language being used again. Sometimes it's fair to accuse Republicans of getting all worked up about nothing. In fact, it's one of their favorite things to do. It doesn't seem to me that this is a case of that. This was sparked by someone who does have the authority or whose agency has the authority to make it harder or prevent you from buying gas stoves or from having gas stove saying that we're looking at doing just that. So then there was a lot of uh, criticism from Republicans, and then there were a lot of Democrats like AOC, like the person talking on CNN saying, well, actually, you know, it might be a good idea. There's all these risks. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not accusing anybody of anything. I'm simply stating the fact that Joe Biden has no interest in pursuing this, and even the plan that was being advanced by folks who were thinking of banning stoves wouldn't be coming for anybody's stove. That language is— They would stop you from buying new her, stoves. Her, her, hyperbolic, exactly. Well. It would simply say that you, you, you can't buy new stoves. And moreover, if you did want to replace your old stove, there's some pretty significant subsidies that you can take advantage of, of about $800—sorry, uh, $800— um, that can help you do that. Now, I just want to say for the record, I prefer cooking on gas stoves. I find it easier to adjust the heat quicker without having to wait for it to like modulate. So much better. Um, I, you know, I think it, the pans that I have seem mm -hmm. to work better on the gas stove that I had before I moved to a new apartment last February. Like that's no question for me. However, I don't think I'll ever go back to a gas stove, not necessarily because of the health implications, but because gas sto uh, electric stoves, rather induction tops are so much easier to clean. You just wipe it down, and plus it gives you all this extra surface area and what is a small living space already. Like, I'll never go back. I love them. So I'm more than happy to have some health hook that makes it easier for people to convert their gas stoves into electric stoves. I think a lot of people will want to take advantage of that, and I think that's ultimately a good thing. It's more choice for people, and if people have kids in the house, especially in small environments, you know, and, and are concerned about what some of these studies suggest— power to them if they want to make the transition. People should read the research and decide for themselves what kind of cooking environment they want in their own house or apartment or whatever it is. I've had both. I vastly prefer cooking with um, with gas. As what about do. cleaning? Do you clean the stove? Yeah. And you take all of the you just, the you eyes take off? It takes five seconds. You take the two it things off. It does not take you... five seconds. You got to take all the things off. You got to clean the the burner. The grates. So you take the, the grates. grates off. You got to wipe down in there. There's cracks and crevices. Things can fall down in there. There's food down there from 1950. So we have like two grates. That's not like individual. You don't to have each the four separate. Burn. I don't I have, have the four separate. The two. In my last yeah, the, that is a pain. I would prefer. And so what we have is two grates. You lift them off. You scrub under there. It's scrub. not that hard. No, it's not scrub. that hard. I, I mean, I got Have you? You've had an induction stove. Top? I've had both. I've had both. And you didn't like the the, the and the glossy flat ease of cleaning. There's no dinging under. There's no crevices. There's um, no grates. I, I, 
I, honestly, I find that I, it's just as hard to clean. I, I find sometimes it's not if there's not that much dirt. How is it's it just clean, as but, hard to clean? Are well, you boiling things, over and cooking things yes. on the end? If things, okay. if things boil right. over, it's really hard to. You got to really scrub that stuff up. It's hard to get off. I just a vinegar water solution should have you spick and span, sir. Just FYI. Look, let us know in the comments. Are you someone who was a gas person who's a convert for convenience reasons like myself? Are you someone who's still sticking with gas, cooking with gas because you're a, a chef and you need to be able to do your little walk action uh, like a pro? <laughs> my eggs. I need my eggs. No, I can't flip them in the pan. Are you, are you a terrible spatula. housekeeper like me who will prioritize at the end of the day being able to do a quick wipe down at the end of the meal? Let us know. We'll have more rising for you, right? Right after this. President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, has become the major focal point of the GOP's legislative agenda. On Wednesday, Republicans in the House Oversight Committee sought bank records belonging to the Biden family from the Treasury Department as part of a long-promised investigation into the first family. The GOP has stated that its intention is to figure out how Biden is linked to his son's past international business dealings. Federal prosecutors have been conducting a probe into Hunter Biden for his ventures overseas, as well as tax and gun charges here at home. Trump-appointed U.S. attorney for Delaware, David C. Weiss, is said to be wrapping up its investigation into him and close to deciding whether he will be prosecuted. So I wasn't as familiar with what these gun charges alluded to are. It sounds kind of serious. Apparently, it's the fact that when you fill out your registration to buy a gun, which he did in, I believe, 2018, you have to attest that you are not on drugs. And in his memoir, it's clear that he is doing drugs at that time. So it's a it's a lying on a form kind of a charge, which they have the ability to prosecute if they want to. But of course, there's prosecutorial dis- discretion. It does start to feel, when you look at charges like that or, or claims like that, that this is the exact kind of witch hunt that Trump, I think, was right to complain about when he pointed to the um, kind of exaggerated coverage of the mm-hmm. raid on Mar-a-Lago for his documents. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, that, that is nothing and should not be pursued. I think you should be able to own a gun. I support gun rights. I also support the legalization of all drugs. So he is was taking advantage of two things I think should both be legal. So I, I wouldn't want him prosecuted over that. And I've said repeatedly on the show, I don't think his, you know, his personal, his struggles with drugs and his marriage and all of those things, it's very, um, it's very, we're interested in it for like prurient reasons. And I don't think it's really the sub, I don't think it's appropriate mm-hmm. to, for like Congress to investigate or to dig into. That's not what we're concerned about. What we're concerned about is, was he uh, an easy mark for people who wanted to pay him for access to his father on behalf of policies in Asia or Eastern Europe or whatever? He, and he seems like he would be easy to, um, easy to go along with those kinds of things. We've seen some emails suggesting that he was bragging about how much his dad holds him in esteem, how easy it is for him to get uh, put people in contact with his dad. Was he brokering meetings? Was he making promises? That is a legitimate subject of inquiry for, for Congress, uh, as is then, you know, how did law enforcement handle it surrounding the election? Did they wait because they didn't want it to be political? Well, how does that square with other decisions they've made? Did they, did they try to crush the laptop store? You know, all that stuff, the, the kind of process of how, of how national law enforcement ha- has handled Hunter Biden previously, it, it, should, it, it needs to investigate itself or can't be trusted to investigate itself. So somebody else has to do it. That is where I want the, the 
right, probe to focus, Robbie, that not might on... be where you want the probe to focus, but in fact, the GOP is Well, I'm arguing on... that to the GOP. That's what they should focus yeah, on. Yeah, they, they are, in fact, focusing on some of these other things that don't seem to have as much meat on the bone. In addition, you know, there is this question of whether or not there is even a there there with respect well, to the... But what do you mean? I, see, I don't think I've ever heard a Republican say... What they really want to do is 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 just nail Hunter on that gun charge or something. They're they're concerned about it's, the influence it's come up. And this is this is yeah. the reporting. They they want to push this. They could drop the gun charge. They could say that that's not the issue. But they're not they're not doing that. So I, I agree with you that the only the the only real substantive issue of public interest is whether or not there was influence peddling on behalf of the president of the United States or the vice president of the United States. My question to that is I mean, there's no conservative voter who cares that he smoked crack. So if they focus on that, it's just so stupid. Well, I, think. I don't know about that. There's certainly a large evangelical base. There's certainly a lot of people who are socially conservative and who I think do relish making fun of and, you know, focusing on the personal issues that the Biden mm-hmm. family has faced over time. That being said, I do wonder, given how long there has been this focus on Hunter Biden um, and the accusation of influence peddling without more coming up, despite all of the kind of impeachment, you know, testimony that implicated mm-hmm. these exact kinds of relationships, whether they're actually going to come up with anything. And in fact, if there's nothing there, might this ultimately inert to the benefit of the Bidens if they just let this run its course? These are very time-consuming things. Let it draw out over the process. And if there's if nothing happens, then Republicans will have wasted a lot of political energy on something that is a real yeah. nothing. Well, it would, I, I, some some voters who care about this will feel that the that law enforcement ended up if that's what ends up happening ends up going after the trivial but easier to prove or or, or thing that doesn't impugn the system in any way mm-hmm. rather than uh, of course maybe all politicians have an incentive to not have too uh, close a a too, too much of an investigation too too close a look at the way a political figure and his family are using their ties to enrich themselves that's something that all political figures have an interest in suppressing it, it could be it's almost akin to um, how the Cuomo ultimately had to get had to get um, you know run out of office for uh, for making several women feel uncomfortable. I'm not saying that was not a serious issue, but it was just frankly a far less serious. It, it was a less serious issue than uh, in, in my view, and I think in the views of a lot of people, than all the other things he was accused of involving um, you know not just making a very bad decision to send co- sick COVID patients back to nursing homes, oh, but then absolutely yeah. covering it up and 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 with his book, you know, not wanting. To acknowledge it because it was like so cor- and so clear yeah. to his agents. I mean, there were so many people just died doing. as a consequence of those decisions. Yeah, and and not, and he couldn't just say, "Oops, I you know I made a mistake," but like it was so clear that it was corruption. But those are policies that other governors have been accused of having as well. So instead of everybody, then but everybody's going to be at risk if we start talking about that too much or if he goes down for that. So let's focus on this smaller, easier to demonstrate thing that doesn't. Do you think that this is the Hunter Biden laptop story? Is it going to hold voters attention now that Republicans have the House? You know, we complained a lot. We kind of, you know, poo poo the one six investigations as something that wasn't getting the ratings that Democrats thought they were going to get. That ultimately didn't seem to really affect the outcome of midterm elections the way that people thought. Mm-hmm. You know, is this basically the Republicans' version of that same thing where they're focusing on these hearings that have nothing to do with the core issues that are germane to the American people. I think over-focusing on the Hunter Biden investigation would be a mistake. I I do think it's something that 
conservative activists do care about and, and want and want it explored. Um, you know, is it the top concern of swing voters who care about the economy, maybe crime, maybe some of those kinds of things? No. So, you know, to make it to, to run on to run against Hunter Biden would be a mistake because Hunter Biden is not the president. Joe Biden is. So you got to run against his policies. But a little bit of investigation absolutely merited, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. um, but meanwhile, the legal team for President Biden found another batch of classified documents from the Obama administration in a private office of the former vice president, this time in a completely separate but unknown location, according to reporting from NBC News. Meanwhile, some over at Team Trump cried out against what they say is a double standard between the two presidents. Donald Trump Jr. tweeted, when's the raid? They've had months to track this stuff down. Where is the special counsel? Where is the wall-to-wall -wall media coverage asking why Biden and Garland have not already been forced to recuse themselves? Representative Mary Miller wrote, the FBI knows that Biden's associates made multi-million dollar deals with China, Ukraine, and Russia. And the FBI knows that Biden illegally took classified documents as vice president. The only reason the FBI would not raid the Biden Center and Biden's Delaware homes is politics. Sometimes when people say, uh, conservatives say, why isn't the media covering this? It's a really smart observation because the media has blind spots and misses a lot of stories, stories that we try to cover here mm -hmm. as we're criticizing the mainstream media. Sometimes they say it and the response <laughs> is, but the media is covering it. Like uh, CNN was, was doing the document thing like all day and all evening. Yeah. So it, it, it is, in fact, I think I argued it was being treated with a little bit more ser seriousness than it seemed to deserve. So more documents turned up. I will say the exact same thing I said about the first batch is that things are excessively classified as, 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 as classified, as not accessible to the American public or to other government officials uh, because they generally have a climate, a culture of secrecy in government agencies that is counterproductive to the task of yeah. holding these agencies accountable when they violate our civil liberties or they misallocate funding or, or engage in policies that are counterproductive to the United States' national security interests, like yeah. destroying Iraq or destroying Libya. But, uh, but fine, more documents. Yeah, also, the critique of Trump, mostly, and where it should have been and where most of it was, was about his lack of compliance, not the fact of making the mistake in the first. I'm not saying that some people, you know, who mm -hmm. was it that said, uh, I think it was Joe Biden who said, who could be so recklessly irresponsible yeah. with documents? Okay. <laughs> who could be? People, Joe Biden yeah, could be. Joe Biden could do. So, yeah. I mean, granted, all of the I told you so is warranted with respect to those kind of statements. But you can't pretend just because Biden is hypocritical and kind of over criticizing Donald Trump's recklessness with the documents when he himself has also been similarly reckless. There are is still a substantive difference between these but two But what cases. do you want to bet that by the time we're done with this, he'll have, there'll be just as many misplaced Biden documents as there maybe, were documents but, maybe, of mar the, What I'm just trying to say here is that the, the, the key difference <laughs> yeah. is what they do when those documents are found. And the reason why there's no raid for Joe Biden is that Joe Biden is saying, please, yes, just take the documents. I don't want them anymore. Fine. Don't count, don't count your documents before they've been returned. It's <laughs> <laughs> a, new, a new saying, I guess, for us in 2023. Is that the year, really? Somehow? Oh, that feels weird to say. More rising right after this. So what's next? Are you going to run again? Are you going? Like, are you? do we get to look forward to this and galvanize I, I, again? I, I will likely run again. Yeah! I don't know what, I don't know what. <laughs> So are you going to go up against um, some tough men who kind of don't always play fair? <laughs> well, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And if it doesn't. 
All right. Uh, that was Drew Barrymore interviewing uh, former Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams yesterday. Robbie, uh, what do you make of this? Third time's the charm? Did Drew Barrymore just do an election denial? She said sometimes they don't play fair. Was she saying it was not fair? Okay, this is saying that you think that there were things that were said or done in, in an election that are unfair is not the same thing as challenging the results of the election. People say a Willie Horton ad was unfair, a mis misleading campaign promises are unfair, you know, taking dark money is unfair. There are a lot of things that are manifestly, substantively rigged about elections that don't have to do with actually thinking the vote totals were lied about. However, Look. Drew Barrymore, very plugged into the, uh, <laughs> got her finger on the pulse of, of where the country is. I at. think Drew seems like a delightful human being, a sweet summer spirit. I really like 51st uh, Dates. 51st Dates is a classic. E.T. <laughs> However, I'm not sure I would necessarily her it was too political announcements. Okay, Robbie. Okay. Anyway, go <laughs> the ahead. The point is, you know, I think that the enthusiasm that she is demonstrating in this interview is reflective of how a lot of Democrats feel about Stacey Abrams. I think the, the thinking is that her losses so far don't preclude her viability as a political candidate, that she has, in fact, been engaged in some pretty tough races. She would have been the first woman, the first black person to be governor of uh, Georgia. You know, it was a very hotly contested race against the incumbent this time around. Certainly, there is a history of people kind of lowering the horizons and running for less competitive races and less competitive um, positions after they fail. Is it unreasonable for Stacey Abrams to think that she should go ahead and make that sort of a pivot? Or you think she should just be tanking her entire political career and going back to the law firm or whatever? Yeah, I think she should find something other to, other else to do with her time than run for office. Mm -hmm. It's just not working. Um, also, I, I can't, this will not avoid uh, me commenting on it. The masks in the audience, did you see those? I did. did I saw those? many people on the internet commenting. Fun yellow Drew Barrymore well. mask. Stacey Abrams is a candidate that loves photo ops in front of masked people where she is not masked. That's happened okay. over and over if again. We're going to really have to do this conversation. We got to do it. I, I know that there's this, this narrative that people like, including a lot of people that I myself am very fond of that says that there's this kind of elitism of the people who are speaking at an event being unmasked and the people in the event being masked. I think that the reality is that when you're the person who everyone is there to see, people want to see you and want you to be unmasked and absent putting you in some kind of like Pyrex cube, which they could probably have experimented with, but absent doing that, it doesn't other people being masked does minimize the risk. Now, obviously, the people on the stage who are to be seen are likely to be in a more elite class than people who are there to pay tickets and be the viewing public. And so there's a weird dynamic that emerges. And I think when you're talking about something like a like a gala or like an eating event, like a seated event where there are a lot of guests and there are a lot of service members and the service members have to be masked and the guests don't have to be masked, there's no excuse for that, right? Mm -hmm. But when the person who is giving a, a public address is unmasked and other people by choice or per, I think they were probably forced to do it in this context and they are wearing the exact yeah, same Yeah, I don't mask. think they were. I don't think that was um, choice. <laughs> that, that, Which if they that, want to wear a mask, fine. That a but... slightly different situation. Yeah, some of the photos of her were with kids, like very young school kids, which I don't you know, love the idea of them being forced to wear a mask all day as they climb all over. It also seems kind of pointless as they climb all over each other all day and like play places and such. Yeah, well, obviously, I think we're getting a lot of studies, I think they're really pursuing this a lot in France right now, where the emphasis should be on 
improving the ventilation in these kinds of spaces. So at the tight, tightly packed studio, Drew Barrymore has to be in there every day. I hope for everybody. Well, it's in, probably a well. It's, it's probably a very well ventilated place. No, what packed. I'm saying is I hope for everybody involved, sake, including the audience members and the crew, that those kind of spaces are well ventilated. But that aside, what do you make of the actual politics of this thing? I mean, because this certainly is the case that many people look. Joe Biden, he was a senator that was a substantial win, but it took him three times running up, running for president to actually succeed. There are many stories of people failing, 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 and ultimately being successful down the line. And I got to say, as much as we have been critical of Stacey Abrams on the show, the emphasis on the um, uh, uh, voter fraud types of claims in the state that haven't come to fruition, the poor spending, um, the, the misappropriation of funds around all of those lawsuits, I do think she has a lot of political talent. And we saw it more in 2018 before the De Democratic Party got her this claws. This sounds like her. girl boss feminism to me, or the way Drew Barrymore framed it. Sure, like, the, the, the men are out to get you. The, they're, maybe they're not playing fair or something. She lost the same guy person. In a cycle that was disastrous for Republicans, where Republicans underperformed all over the place. Um, she, she didn't she didn't win so you don't think there's something to the idea that it was a hard race to begin with it was an up it was a long mm -hmm. shot for her for a lot of reasons politically demographically it's a state that's turning blue but it is you know historically a red state no one thought she would come as close as she did in 2018 that you should judge her loss a little come differently. As close. She, as she did it. Right, but now she's up against an incumbent right. who didn't exactly do all of the crazy fear-mongering yeah. things that people said that the Trump- I mean, I think the strength of do. her opponent had a lot to do with it, but she did not make herself a more compelling candidate since 2018. I, I think that's true, too, but the, the fundamental question I'm trying to get at here, Robbie, is just because someone loses a hard race, does that mean they shouldn't run again? I think if you lose, and then you lose again and you do worse, you should take a look in the mirror. Right, but taking a look in the mirror can mean I'm not going to run for governor of Georgia again. Mm -hmm. It could be that I'm going to run for a House seat. I'm going to run for Senate. I'm going to run for a mayoral position. I'm going to. Well, you I'm know, sure she can find a district somewhere that would elect her. I mean, most districts are safe for their for the whichever party has a clear majority. I'm going to run right? for president. Yeah. Could be the thing that she's thinking of. Certainly, you don't have to be. Uh, a congressman before you do that, Donald Trump was really lauded for being an outsider in his Beta O'Rourke, who we have often compared her to, right. decided in the wake of his loss to just make a go for president. Right, and um, I believe I he's been much less low. successful in his electoral endeavors, endeavors than Stacey Abrams has yeah. been. Well, like Stacey Abrams, he did, he put up pretty good numbers against uh, Ted Cruz back in, um, uh, what was it, 2018. 2018. And, and he, you know, even though he didn't win, he did help, I think, a lot of local Democrats um, uh, in statewide races uh, had better results because, you know, he was bringing people to the polls. So you could argue that that was worth it, um, you know, made Ted Cruz sweat a little bit. But then, but then he decided from that in the same way that Stacey Abrams did. And again, they were invited to make these conclusions by, by a mainstream or elite progressive media that flattered them with all those magazine covers and the, uh, the new Democrat. Like Drew. The, Sorry, Drew. But that is not the right approach to be right, That's exactly what she's doing. I mean, there's no way she—I mean, she is that. So there's no way she doesn't do that. I mean, she's just—like, she is Drew Barrymore. This is, this is the adoration from the kind of media Democratic elite— 
uh, the, the the cultural elites. She's just reflecting when you're getting that, it just what everyone has you. heard, right? Like, well, how it, I'm not expecting Drew Barrymore to have this fully fleshed out political perspective. Mm-hmm. She's she's parroting. Ba- she's reflecting. Drew Barrymore, back. not a dirtbag leftist. <laughs> <laughs> what a surprise! Yeah, but look, she's she's parroting back all of the glowing media that we've seen that has like basically pre-coordinated um, Stacey Abrams before she actually won anything. And I and I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I don't think that Stacey Abrams has ever been left enough for me, but I have thought that people underestimated her political talent in 2018. I think that if she's able to tap back into some of that populism that she demonstrated at the time, she could be successful in the future. I don't think that losing necessarily means you have to sit it out, but running again and again and again, not learning from your mistakes, and in fact, doubling down on the things that cause you to be less successful in each iteration— is a big problem. And so I do agree with you, Robbie. I hope she sits down, takes a beat, and does some deep thinking before jumps. Before she Less jumps enough for Brianna Joy Gray is a difficult um, milestone to clear, I think, for and that, a lot of people. Look, I, I, I would contend that, but I don't know that we have time to get through that. Oh, but we do that. want to uh, make sure you know that Stacey Abrams' group uh, was actually ordered to pay over $200,000 after losing a voting rights trial. And we've talked a lot on the show. We interviewed a great reporter mm-hmm. about how it doesn't quite add up the amount of uh, the amount of money she took in and, and what it was used for and that there's some allegations of it was paying a former staffer, a former chief of staff who was put so in charge of this team. voting ro- yeah. rights organization that they were paid very handsomely. Yeah. So check that out and we'll have more rising right after this. Government scientists and Moderna withheld crucial data about its new COVID-19 booster, the bivalent booster, from federal government officials, and they're not happy about it. According to CNN, the data kept under wraps revealed that an updated booster might not provide any more protection against COVID-19 than the other booster, the original shots. This information would have likely been pertinent during meetings held last year in which advisors mulled over whether to greenlight that booster. Advisors on the advisory committee that works with the FDA on vaccine approvals expressed concern over the lack of transparency. One such advisor told CNN, quote, decisions that are made for the public have to be made based on all available information, not just some information, but all information. The data excluded was based on a study that examined how well each vaccine elicited antibodies against the Omicron strain. Basically, the information withheld from advisors didn't include results on who caught COVID-19 and who did not. Rising reached out to Moderna for comment, but as of taping, we have not heard back. So here's the key paragraph from the CNN report, which is very good. Glad they're doing this. Among the hundreds of participants who received the original vaccine and showed no evidence of a prior COVID-19 infection, over the period of the small study, 1.9% became affected. Among the hundreds who received the new bivalent vaccine, a higher percentage, 3.2%, became infected. Um, the preprint did not indicate whether these findings were st- statistically significant, but so th- they're saying that might have made the FDA say, well, do we really have enough data to conclude that, th- that there's a reason to approve this because it's not giving very much benefit? It's a little hard to tell from both the wording of this article and the wording of uh, being used by everyone involved yeah. exactly what we're comparing. If we're comparing the bivalent booster, which I believe is 
is uh, it's authorized. That's the purpose it's authorized for. They were I hoping be it would be that. better against COVID. Uh, Omicron. Yeah, they're certainly hoping it would yeah. be better against Omicron. And they were comparing that, and I'm not admittedly 100% clear if they're comparing that to people who just got vaccinated or people who got vaccinated and then got the initial booster. But either way, it was not, it's either not improving on the vaccine plus booster or it's not improving on just the vaccine. Yeah, I think that the implication is that it's not, in fact, a better booster, which maybe doesn't make that big of a difference if they're both generally similarly mm-hmm. effective. Hey, okay, you got options. If you like Moderna, you like Moderna. If you like Pfizer, you like Pfizer. Except for the fact that U.S. taxpayers spent nearly $5 billion on the new booster, which has been given to more than 48.2 million people, according to this article. So there is a kind of a misappropriations of funds angle to this. There is, I think, scrutiny that needs to come down about the relationship between these companies and the government and the way that they're basically getting um, like a pay, pay-to-play deal here. Um, yeah. Uh, these guaranteed huge multi-billion dollar contracts to, you know, issue out these jobs that aren't necessarily in every instance medically indicated. Especially if we're talking about requiring them, mm. which we're, we're not in most cases talking about that anymore, although there are still college campuses who are requiring them. They're requiring the bivalent. Uh, I, I looked at some, there's some Ivy League camp. I can't remember exactly if it was Harvard or, yeah, one of those, at least I think multiple we're still going, we're going to require, if you were going to set foot back on campus, you need the bivalent booster, which there's data that the FDA wish it had seen that might have changed its mind about whether that should even be allowed or recommended. And, and then obviously we've talked about adding uh, COVID vaccines or boosters, et cetera, to, you know, to the schedule list, mm-hmm. um, which will not necessarily require it, although there will be municipalities that will just say, oh, yeah, this is on the schedule. This, is, this vaccine is scheduled. So if you want to go to school here, we expect you to have all the vaccines on the schedule list. Some will not do that, but some probably will. And then there will be a liability shield. Yeah, so that's a danger. For the people who are going to require vaccines, I think the question would have been, are they going to require this booster or the other booster? Not, yeah. not whether or not this information would cause them to not require boosters at all. But, yeah. I, you know, I take your point. I, I mean, I personally do feel like the, the, the biggest problem with this is because there's not a claim being made here about the fact that these don't work. Or, you know, they, they might not work as well as another one, but, they, you know, but it's the idea that the government would have paid money for a substandard product when a, a, a perfectly mm-hmm. good, superior product, frankly, right. is already on the market. And, you know, there are all kinds of interesting kind of um, uh, legal mechanisms to try to claw back money when people have extorted the government, you know, these kind of key TAM cases you can, t- you can bring on behalf of the American government. And we'll see if anybody actually pursues those type of things. But to your point, Robbie, there all are all these liability sh- shields in place specifically around these vaccines. And it's part of why they've been able to rush things so fast and get away with a lot. There was a time where the rushing made sense earlier in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I understand that people were having to make these cost benefit analysis because of how many people were dying of COVID. But these days, for these mistakes to still be being made, I mean, you see now, this is a CNN report. These are the government health offic- uh, officials who have been um, really criticized mm-hmm. throughout this process, who are the ones that are saying that they too feel misled. So it's, it's a really interesting development. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if this will open the door up to certain, uh, to more scrutiny, generally speaking, of how the pharmaceutical industry is operating in this space. How it's been, how it worked government contacts to put pressure on social media to uh, to deplatform people who were expressing skepticism of vaccines under some circumstances. We talked yesterday about new Twitter files disclosure showing that Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner and also a member of Pfizer's, he's on the board of directors for Pfizer and is a is a uh, spokesperson on on television for all sorts of COVID uh, for, for the pandemic, for how we should 
comport ourselves during the pandemic was, you know, pressuring, was trying to get Twitter to take action against a former FDA commissioner who mm-hmm. was saying, uh, you, in his view, you wouldn't necessarily need a vaccine if you had, if you've already been infected with COVID. Um, and he was saying, if you haven't, then vaccine's great. But that, you know, that kind of thing, which could undermine uh, the bottom line of a Pfizer or a Moderna, is something they didn't want you to say. Yeah, for sure. It's, for v- sure. it's very worrisome. So I'm, I'm glad, anyway, to see this getting mainstream coverage from an outlet like CNN, because there are some, you know, very, you know, very pro, pro-vaccine people reading CNN, which I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, but you want to hear, you want to hear some contrary information, and you want to hear, this is the FDA itself. The yeah. people who put utter faith in the FDA, I'm not actually one of them, but there are people yeah. who put total faith in government health advisors. Okay, well, government health advisors are saying, you didn't tell us everything we needed to yeah, know to make an informed decision about this. But it, isn't that's this, something people should listen to? This is also something that we're seeing with the Twitter files. You, you've acknowledged, you've, you're the one that's pointed this out, Robbie, that so much of what we thought was just kind of pure, partisan, pro-liberal mm. uh, um, advocacy was actually the people at these institutions who have made mistakes, mind you. The Twitter, you know, they, they, they made bad calls, but that they were being peer pressured as well. And people internally didn't like what was going on any more than we liked what was going on. And even people like Joel Roth, who have been the focus yeah. of a lot of criticism, Relentless were in fact pressure pushing back from the government. a great deal as much yeah. as they felt like they could. Maybe they should have done more, you know, but so often it's not the partisanship. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I, I feel like a broken record, but it is this, the, this corporate influence, these pharmaceutical companies twisting people's arms hiding things from scientists, hiding things from the government, and, and inducing the government to make bad decisions. Does that make the government like off the hook? Absolutely not. They have an a extreme, enormous responsibility to the American people to dot their I's across their T's and to not let the pharmaceutical industry get so entwined with them in the first instance. Well, and, right, because people are going to leave the government and send them, then they exactly. send the boards of these the revolving companies. Door. They're responsible, absolutely. But like this is why, I mean, I hope this issue continues to get depoliticized and that people across the political spectrum can focus on what the root of the problem is, which is this nefarious corporate influence as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Yeah, the, the cooperation between two large and unaccountable entities, um, the, the one to hide information from you. Well, one is technically accountable, but we have to hold it well, accountable. Like, technically, the, well, they're, yeah. It's, <laughs> in practice, it's hard to hold uh, both of these entities accountable, but we would. We, that's what we try to do here every day. More rising right after this. Media personality Andrew Tate reportedly texted his rape accuser, quote, I love raping you, and described strangling her on an audio recording shared with the UK police. The police told her there was an ounce of doubt that prevented them from prosecuting him. Tate was detained by Romanian police in December, and a court in Romania's capital, Bucharest, has upheld his 30-day arrest on charges of organized crime, human trafficking, and rape. That's according to AP News. We're going to play one of the voice notes he sent the woman regarding his assault on her. Warning, this is a little graphic, so don't listen to this if you don't feel like doing that. Am I a bad person? Because the, the more you didn't like it, the more I enjoyed it. I loved how much you hated it. Turn me on. Why am I like that? Why? I am one of the most dangerous men on this planet. This is what conservative commentator Candace Owens had to say about Tate. I do not believe that Andrew Tate is a rapist. I don't. I think that that is what people like to accuse men of when they're trying to take them down. 
And she does, now to be fair, she goes on, that's a longer clip, and I watched the rest of it, and I didn't completely disagree with what she was saying. She said uh, that she really do, she doesn't approve of you know, what is going on there, his little harem he has. But um, you know, everyone is innocent until proven guilty, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, we have to kind of wait and see for, for what exactly this kind of situation is. And I, I do, and I have urged a little, caution, a little bit of caution here because I think Andrew Tate is a very gross individual. I think the effort to make him a, a kind of a hero or a, a figure for young men to look up to was very bad. I, I think he's a con artist. Like, I'm saying bad things about him. It is true, however, at least in the U.S., that there has been an effort on the part of law enforcement to use sex trafficking, sex trafficking as this like catch-all term. Um, uh, uh, Craigslist was shut down over that accusation. Um, it, 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 there's a lot of like online policing of bad behavior that is not like literally people being kidnapped. Uh, it, frankly. I mean, as a libertarian, I support this. Maybe you have a different view or other people have different views. Um, consensual prostitution, which, I th again, I think is, is not a good thing, but I don't think should be criminalized, uh, being portrayed by law enforcement actually as sex trafficking. And usually involves, in the U.S. context, arresting like a lot of like, vulnerable young women um, rather than like the people who, if you're going to argue someone mistreated someone in this circumstance, is like, not helpful to victims at all. Now, I don't know that that's going on here at all. I just know that has been the case in the U.S. context. Obviously, what he's describing on that call sounds like sexual assault. It's um, definite. I mean, as long as he's speaking literally and not rhetorically, it's he's definitionally it's definitionally rape. Like he's saying, I, I liked that you didn't want me to have I mean, right, sex it could with be you. A, it could be a safe the word more scenario that you, yeah, or it, something it, like that. It could that. be. But here's the problem with could be's, would be's, and should be's. Okay. The reason, it is very reasonable to say that there have been some overreaches in the realm of Me Too and that it is silly to presumptively believe women. Understanding that the reason that the believe women, you know, hashtag originated because women were categorically never believed, I think it probably makes sense to sit in a space of, Let's create an environment for law enforcement to do what they need to do to get to the bottom of truth without jumping to conclusions. I think that's perfectly reasonable. That's not what Candace Owens said. What Candace Owens said is, I don't think Andrew Tate is a rapist. Mm -hmm. I don't think Andrew Tate is a rapist. It's an affirmative claim that Andrew Tate is not a rapist. Not, we don't know yet. Let's not jump to conclusions. These claims have been weaponized in the past. Let's reserve space for whatever the criminal justice system decides. And so she's really going out on a limb there and saying that she claims on the basis of some evidence or no evidence or just vibes and feelings that Andrew Tate is not a rapist, and I hope that you know that doesn't age as poorly as it seems as it might. There's also a, a there is a huge difference between being accused of sexual misconduct or sexual assault and being and sex trafficking. Like how were, were the people there like brought like lured under false pretenses? Were they held against their will? All those things are going to factor into like I have no. It seems likely to me that Romanian authorities can find some charge that to stick him with, whether that will be, you know, the, what's described as, like, you know, people chained to radiators or something. I don't know. We, none of us know. Right, none of us know. But choices are being made about who to presumptively believe. And again, I think it's deeply hypocritical to say you shouldn't jump to c conclusions and believe the woman, while at the same time you're going to jump to conclusions and believe Andrew Tate. Yeah, I, so the part of that we played I don't agree with. But it is, I mean, the, the right even 
cult accuses everyone of sex trafficking. I mean, the, the whole they most pizza, certainly do. Well, and right, so does everyone. <laughs> so it's not wrong to say that that is an accusation that gets thrown around to discredit people and it wildly disproportionate to anything going on. Yeah, I would simply not weigh in. I think it is not difficult for me sitting here as an independent observer who has no special knowledge of what's gone on in that case to simply say, we'll see what the police decide. We'll see what the investigation figures out. Um, what I'm hearing on that tape is disturbing. Uh, and what I, what we all know from his public statements in the past about um, hitting women uh, and his website where he talks, he describes how he coerces women into these kinds of relationships that, again, people in the know describe as sex trafficking, exploitative type relationships, is evidence that I wouldn't want to be leveraged against me. <laughs> I would not be a happy camper if all of that were out there in the world about me. However, we'll wait and see what happens. And it's interesting that Candace Owens has decided to weigh in on Team Tate. We'll see if history redeems her or not. Wait and see. But again, in the U.S. context, at least, there are all, like there are all these organizations that say that that have huge statistics for how many people have been like sex trafficked every year, and they're always inflated because they're including again prostitution, which many people think should be illegal, but it's not again not it's not coercive or or, or force from the people doing it. Yeah, it's look, very we, we live in a we live in a country in a world where sex crimes are underreported, underprosecuted, and uh, uh, perpetrators are under um, charged and convicted. So I'm not going to participate in any kind of narrative that says that we're talking too much about um, the victims of sex crimes, even if there are overreaches and politicizations of it, the same way there's overreaches and politicization of every single thing. But it cannot be used as a political tool to um, make it more difficult for victims to get accountability from accusers when we barely have even cracked the door open to even acknowledging the extent to which sex crimes are rampant in our society. The number of rape kits that go untested every year, the number of crimes that simply go unreported. So like, it's, it's very difficult. I am concerned about the overreaches of Me Too to the extent that it's made people take these real I'm claims less seriously. And so I'll agree with you there. I'm not talking about this as a Me Too overreach so much as a law enforcement overreach. There has been a lot of law enforcement overreach on this subject. I, 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 on what subject specifically? Because sex, trafficking. sex Because sex crimes are not sex crimes, sex incredibly... I, 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 don't, I don't follow this. Maybe you know information that I don't know, and maybe that's true. But again, Andrew Tate, the information is out there. I think it's a really bold choice to come out and say, I don't think someone who was on tape describing themselves forcibly having sex with someone is a rapist. If I heard someone say, I enjoy forcibly having sex with you, I at very least would sit that one out. But hey, me and Candace Owens have different uh, journalistic styles. And again, we'll see where the chips fall. Mm. I Again, I think he's... <laughs> I also want to wait to see what they come up with. It would not at all surprise me if they find very compelling evidence based on what we just heard that he committed a sexual assault. Um, we'll see. We'll see. That's a wrap for us for this week. 
Well, that's we got the whole week done already. It's Thursday. Yeah, we're champions. <laughs> if you missed any of our content the last few days, there's no need to fret. We will be re-upping this week's highlights for tomorrow. And we'll also be back next week to bring you uh, all the updates on the news, including if I ever find my missing scooters. Um, I know you're all on the edge of your seats about that. Tell me, uh, tell us all in the comments what you feel about my my new glasses. Uh, if you want to push me into a locker. Please validate this man in his glasses. I swear, every guest, it's, they're the, the judge on the basis today about how quickly they recognize that you you have a new accessory. Oh, you're going to make me sound very vain. <laughs> no. Look, Robbie, we're both Leos. I, I joke <laughs> about it because I empathize with it. And there's, I, I see myself not just reflected in you, but also quite literally now reflected <laughs> in your shiny new frames. They're great. I love them. I'm a big fan, Robbie. It's Thank great. you, Brianna. I was waiting also for you to say that. Right, I'm happy to validate. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, you know we're available anywhere you listen to podcasts and also on Roku and other streaming services. So there is literally no excuse in the entire world for you not to tune in. We are everywhere. Have a great weekend, guys. Bye.